the real existential threat on this planet isn't climate change and it isn't nuclear war. It's the illusion of separation, of separation from each other and separation from nature. And so because we, we are, you know, to have quote unquote self-awareness, we can witness our own demise or the only way you can predict the future is to design it yourself, is to design that and to design it collectively. That's how you predict the future. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Janeri. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. This episode of the Hate Change Podcast is sponsored by Palmetto, a solar company making it easy, accessible, and affordable for homeowners to make the switch to solar. So why make the switch? Check this out. The average yearly carbon footprint for a person in the United States is 16 tons. 16 tons. But according to the Nature Conservancy and climate scientists around the world, in order to avoid that critical 2 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures, we all need to lower our personal average to just 2 tons by 2050. We can do this in small and large steps. If you're a homeowner in the U.S., I'm really excited to say that it has never been more affordable or more impactful for you to switch to solar. And Palmetto can help manage the entire process, making it easy for you to save money while reaching your climate goals. Use our link in the show notes to get an idea for your monthly savings and find out what your long-term environmental impact will be after switching to Palmetto. Hey, Change Podcast listeners, click the link in the show notes to see the impact you can make with Palmetto. Hey, Robin. Hey, Antares. How's it going? Really well. Justin and I are looking at possibly moving to Costa Rica. So we have a lot of exciting plans coming up for us. And we're really taking this time away from what life used to look like, you know, given that we're still in a global pandemic. We're using this as an opportunity to reevaluate what's important to us and putting a lot of thought and intention into creating a life of our dreams. So I'm very excited. <laughs> you have all the rights to be excited. I'm so excited for you. And I happen to know that you guys are looking between two different lots right now. Yes. And one is the bigger lot that has obviously more space and it's bigger, but doesn't have a view. And there is this tiny, not, not tiny, but slightly smaller lot that has a view. And we're talking about how like sometimes the smaller thing can give more value. And I think that really speaks to everything, you know, in this sustainability movement where it's not just about the bigger is the best. It's like, what do I actually want? And having a view makes me feel more expansive. And so sometimes the smaller option is actually the better one. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing I keep coming back to, too, because I was totally that kid that would like try and get the best of the thing. If they were giving out, you know, little gifts at a kid's birthday, I'd be like, I want the best one, you know, and that sort of selfish side of, of myself, whatever that would be. I'm putting that aside and saying, you know, 
any lot that we get in Costa Rica is a freaking lot of land in Costa Rica and all of it is going to be beautiful. There is no wrong choice here. So um, it is very exciting to weigh that, you know, you know, more space around a home, but not much of a view, but view of trees. Trees are beautiful to look at. Or higher up, expansive views of a mountain, smaller lot size, but expansive views. And I love what you had said about sometimes the thing that seems smaller or less actually gives you more in other ways that are even more nourishing. So it's very exciting. It's very exciting. And I think you said something that I kind of want to emphasize, which is that in this world, there are so many choices and so many options, and it is so easy to get overwhelmed and to take away the value just because we literally are so overwhelmed by, by the choices and the choice architecture of, of our society. And I think just taking it back to simplicity and say, I'm moving to Costa Rica. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, who cares? Even if I get the tiniest lot, like I'm moving to Costa Rica. So yeah. I'm so excited for you, Robin. I know Thank that you, you. your family will thrive there. And it's kind of funny because you're moving into the jungle and I'm literally going back into the concrete jungle and about to move back to New York City with my husband, which is also really exciting. And, and that's something interesting too. I kind of want to just touch upon real quick because I've been so torn this past year because I do thrive in nature and I'm someone who could hike every single day. If, you know, I would if I could. And I really, I find so much of my core energy source in nature and being able to hug trees and whatnot. And so I've been, you know, it's been weird to feel this, this, you know, like to be drawn back to the city and feeling like I should go back there. Because I'm like, why do I feel that way? Like, am I just fooling myself? Is that an old dream that I'm holding on to? But then every time I go to New York, I'm like, no, this is home. And something that I'm very excited about right now is how we can restore cities and rethink cities i'm very immersed into the green city smart city space right now and i just recently learned from reading this incredible book that i will link in the show notes that two-thirds of the global population will be living in in cities uh, by 2050 i think right now i think it's approximately 50 percent of people live in cities so we can't you know ignore the fact that people do live in cities and so we can't just erase cities from the earth and, and and ignore them and everyone can't just you know all of a sudden move to the countryside no we have to bring nature to the cities and so i am very excited about moving back to the city and help fuel this movement into greener cities and restabilizing the climate in in cities by by um, planting trees and incorporating green rooftops and gardens and all the things that we can do actually to rejuvenate cities and so that's that's what i'm excited about right now yeah, I remember you saying as well that living in a city, you actually tend to have a smaller carbon footprint than you do living in the country because of a smaller home size, smaller, you know, lower heating bills, different things, taking, you know, public transit more often. And as a side note, Andres, I have been envisioning you being part of the leading edge of the green movement in cities. Like I can so see you turning your co-op into, you know, starting to have a, you know, rooftop garden and, you know, speaking to the people in your building and in your neighborhood about creating more green spaces. And I think it's really important that people know that wherever you are, there is opportunity to do something that benefits both the people, the animals and the planet. Wherever you are, there's opportunity. And in cities, that is such an exciting space to really lean into what we need in this transition into a more climate just future yeah really and truly and robin thank you for holding that vision for me i take it and i appreciate it 
And that leads us into our conversation today with this incredible woman, Sally Rane. She is the president and co-founder of Global Choices, which is a women-led organization on a mission to drive action on the ice crisis and climate change. And she's so passionate and knowledgeable on what's going on in the Arctic and in Antarctica and the issues we're facing globally uh, from our ices melting. Robin, what did you take away from this conversation? You know, one of the things that stood out for me, which is happens in pretty much every conversation, is that the people that we speak to here on Hey Change are so knowledgeable and, you know, they're so they have so much information about what's going on in the world that is challenging, and yet they're full of optimism and hope. And for Sally, she was so uplifting to speak to. She tells a story at the beginning of our interview, which I know our listeners are going to love, about how she used to nap in a tree and how mm-hmm. she could connect with nature in such a deep way that she just has been driven to be an advocate to take care of our environment and take care of trees, take care of nature in a way that she really is leading change in our world. And it was really helpful for me to learn about the importance of polar ice. You know, it's easy to think about polar ice is important for penguins and polar bears and things that I don't really have much of experience with. But the polar ice caps are so important to the health of our planet. And in this conversation, we get to learn all about why they're important and what we can do to help protect polar ice. Yeah, I love how she says we are all ice-depending species. And I'm going to be honest, when I wake up in Massachusetts, I don't think of myself as an ice-depending species. I know that I am, right? But like she really... She's able to make the connection between what's going on in other parts of the world. How do we contribute to that? And what can we do to make change happen? So incredible episode. She's such an empowering woman. And she truly believes in female leadership uh, and women stepping up, not in a way where we take over the world, but just like taking up more space and, and, and leading with compassion and love and, and seeing things differently, which I think is so incredibly important in this movement. So yes, you are going to learn so much. Um, about the climate crisis and about you know what's going on with the ice sheets melting and why that's really really scary actually but also what we can all do to make a difference so yeah I think it's time to to just hand it over to our guest yeah let's jump in I know you guys are going to love this conversation with Sally Renee Well, Sally, I'm so grateful to meet you today. It's so nice to have you on the Hey Change podcast. Welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And thank you so much for asking me. And uh, I just want to say before we start that I'm really impressed with your podcast and how you came to put all this together in the last five years. It's very impressive. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, to get started, Sally, I would love for our listeners to know more about you. Can you tell us what brought you to the climate conversation and what has kept you here? Well, it's a long story, and it actually started when I was a child. When I was six or seven, I decided that I didn't want to go to Sunday school anymore and walked out of my Sunday school class And my Sunday school teacher was very perturbed and went into the congregation, got my mother. She followed me. I was walking home. I was scared to death. I was going to get in trouble. I was walking home and she yelled at me, 
called to me to stop and I wouldn't stop. And finally she demanded that I stop and I stopped and she came up behind me and she put her hands on my shoulders and turned me around and stooped down so that she was talking to me eye to eye. She wasn't talking down to me. And she said, I understand you don't want to go to Sunday school anymore. And I said, I don't. She waited a minute and she said, well, if you don't want to be in Sunday school, where do you want to be? And out of the mouths of babes, I said, with God. And she said, oh, and where would that be? And I immediately pointed across the street to a huge field that had a stream that was tangling through the long grass and it had little beaches where there were bugs and worms and all kinds of uh, insects and critters and there were birds overhead and there were these huge trees, huge old trees. And I loved it there. And there was this one tree, I happened to know intuitively that it was a female And she had a cavity at the base of her, just big enough for me to crawl in and take my naps. So I napped in this fabulous tree for probably three or four years. And I was there after school. I was there on the weekends. And I learned a lot from that tree uh, about nature about myself, about there is really no separation between us and nature. We are nature. And I think that we are nature waking up to ourselves, that there is a transition, a transformation happening on the planet. We're starting to wake up to this. And one day, Uh, I I came out of my nap and there was this voice that said, put your ear to my skin and you can hear me grow. And I'm just, you know, I'm seven years old and I'm going, hmm, okay, okay. So I did. I put my ear, I was inside of her and I put my ear next to her and I don't know if I heard her grow or not. I was only seven, but I think I did. And so that experience really inspired me, grounded me. And I realized even at that young age that anything that diminishes nature diminishes me. So my path in life was basically set then And I married a cattle rancher (laughs) when I was very young and lived on a working cattle ranch and learned a lot about nature, you know, in that experience. And it just became so obvious to me that, you know, my undergraduate degrees were in fine arts. I made my living for a while as an artist and also a teaching major in geology because I wanted to know about the living library of the planet um, and also work the left and right brain. And my master's was in education because I wanted to teach, I thought, but I realized as time 
progressed in my early 20s that really nature was my passion. And so I got a full paid fellowship to Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and did doctoral work there. And I've never done anything else, never worked in any other sector, but for conservation, the environment. I was a resource policy analyst for the Wilderness Society. And climate change became very evident um, that climate change was going to trump it all. And it really was the existential risk of the planet. And whatever else I was doing was going to eventually become subservient to that. So I shifted out of focusing on wild areas and biodiversity, wildlife, uh, et cetera, and started focusing on renewable energy. And I was the co-founder and of the American Renewable Energy Institute that's in Aspen and has held up until COVID what became a renowned summit on uh, renewable energy and also not just renewable energy, but all the intersectionality of that with other sectors and other resources, because everything is connected to everything else. I just wanted to ask for a second, Sally, when did you become aware of climate change as an issue? Because I think there's people like me, I'm newer to the climate movement, but my understanding is, is we've known about this for decades. And I find it really fascinating that actually, you know, how long have we had this knowledge? if you don't mind answering that. No, um, I think it really became prominent in my work, I'm going to say 20 years ago, maybe a little bit sooner than that. And one of the things I noticed, I worked on a campaign in Canada for protecting a huge watershed. It actually was 2.3 million acres. Uh, of the Tatanchini River and the Alsec. And they, they headwater in Canada and they confluence in Canada, but then they come into the United States. So it was a cross-boundary issue. And the first trip I took, which was about 20 years ago now, a rafting trip, there was one curve in the river where there were 21 glaciers that came down to the water. I went back, let's see, 2017, that would have been about 17 years, three years later. And in those three years, you could see where those glaciers had receded. Then I went a third time, which now would be about 10 years ago. And oh my God, the difference is stunning. It's shocking. And so I would say, you know, that that second trip really, really brought it home. And I realized, you know, I was very involved in protecting wild areas, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but I've worked in South America. I've worked in Africa, Papua New Guinea, etc. And I realized that. I could be working to save what I considered, uh, there's really the biological archives of the planet because their wilderness is untouched and needs to just let the genius of nature proceed as 
intended. But I realized that wasn't going to happen. With climate change, everything was going to shift. So we had to go to the to the source of what was happening. And of course, that is, as we all know, emissions. We need really deep, deep emission cuts now. And we need to decarbonize, obviously, the economies. And we have to really put a lot of R&D money into renewable energy. But we have to get moving on hydrogen because solar and wind are not going to do it. And we have to really look at CCS, carbon capture and sequestration. We have to be looking at taking carbon out of the atmosphere as well. And technologies are proceeding, you know. Um, The question of all of this is economy of scale. You know, the, the magnitude of the problem now really requires rapid deployment at scale of these technologies. And I do want to add that technology is not going to save us because we cannot keep on consuming the way we've been consuming. We can't just fix it and think that we can live the way we've been living and populate the way we've been populating. So deep systemic change, not just in our institutions, but in our lives, in our thinking, in our relation with nature. Wow. Uh, You feel like you brought us on such a journey already. Um, The thing that came up to me, and I want to really just plug in that you said, we are nature waking up to itself. I think that's so powerful. And I can actually relate a lot from my own upbringing in my childhood. I would not crawl into a tree, but I would crawl up a tree and sit on the branch and just connect for hours and hours. And I think a lot of people listening right now might feel the same. And may not have been able to understand what that was and what that meant. But like, you know, if you are someone who's listening, you're like, okay, I do feel drawn to nature. I do feel like I want to connect more, but it feels weird to go out and touch a tree and hug a tree or whatever it is. It's not weird. And if that means putting your hands in soil and reconnecting and just learning what it is to be life again, to be part of life, um, it is an evolution that's undergoing. And so just, you know, kind of I go give yourself to that and just allow yourself to be part of that transition. Um, and something you brought up too, which I think it's something I wanted to actually ask you about is how important it is that we don't just look to technology and advancement in, in figuring this out. And this is a conversation I'm getting caught in quite a bit in terms of, you know, can we aim for a carbon neutral world and how do we do so without overstepping culture and indigenous people's wisdoms and the fact that we, you know, can't just continue to exploit nature to find new solutions. And if that one solution just masks the other, then there is no solution, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do we excel this movement into renewable energies, but to make sure that we don't overlook the complexity that nature is and that climate change brings about, which is, you know, we have to also go back into maybe some old ways of doing things. Like how do we redesign society? Like it's, it's such deep questions, but I think these are conversations that we need to have. And so if you have any thoughts on that, I would love to hear your wisdom and what you have to say. Mm. Well, that's very well put. And it is, it's a deep conversation because it's complex but I think that we have made things more complex than they really need to be. 
when you have laws on your books that are 3,000 pages long, you know, you have created, we are creators. We have created this situation and we can create another. Buckminster Fuller said, you don't try to fix the existing paradigm. You make the existing paradigm obsolete. So some of the things that, and this gets into a much deeper conversation about spirituality and, you know, what is our relationship to the cosmos? We are all the elements that a tree is. We are all the elements of the grass. We are all the elements of the water. We are no different. We are just a different form of energy expressing itself. And so once that realization really settles in like water sinks into sand, you can't ignore it. You simply cannot ignore it because the, and it's not so much about responsibility Yes, we have stewardship responsibility, but it's even deeper than that. It's a respect. It's an original knowing, what I call an original knowing of who we are and where we are and what our place is in the whole fabric of life. And that's a, that's a deep understanding. That's, that's a knowledge that we all have, but it's been overlaid with education, with media, with, and now we've got, you know, Facebook and all this other stuff that that's all surface. It's all surface. It's not the essential human. And so we get further and further and further from nature, which actually in the long run gets us further and further from ourselves. So we don't know where we fit. And I think the real existential threat on this planet isn't climate change and it isn't nuclear war. It's the illusion of separation. Hmm. of separation from each other and separation from nature. And so because we, we are, you know, to have quote unquote self-awareness, we can witness our own demise or the only way you can predict the future is to design it yourself is to design that and to design it collectively. That's how you predict the future. So you would think that COVID, that provided lessons that would not have been available in any other way, as far as humanity coming together, doesn't matter, religion, race, whatever, you know, economic status, coming together uh, to really address a common challenge, a common problem, a common threat. And in some ways, it's kindergarten work compared to climate change. 
Humanity has never, ever had a calling to collaborate, deep collaboration, that climate change is presenting to us. Now, if you want to even go deeper, did we create this so that we would have this opportunity? That's for a different conversation. <laughs> That's a different conversation. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And we won't go there. But there are so many pieces to climate change that have to be uh, integrated because Earth systems are interdependent. So the work that Global Choices does is focused on the Arctic. And the reason we're focused on the Arctic is the centerpiece of the planetary cooling system is the Arctic sea ice. And it is melting at unprecedented rates. And NASA put up satellites in 1979 and has been tracking this. It's so important because the sea ice reflects the sun's heat and radiation. And when the ice melts, all of that is absorbed by dark ocean water. And it's called the albedo effect. Right now, the estimate of scientists I have seen, they say 50% or more. I saw one that said we've lost 54% already of the albedo effect in just four decades. And it's rapidly advancing. Have we hit a tipping point? That's a major question. And some say no, some say yes. The new IPCC report, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, which is, I don't know how many scientists, but (laughs) hundreds of scientists collaborate uh, on that report, said that sea ice has somewhat of a linear uh, trajectory in that it is highly sensitive to CO2, both too much and when it diminishes. A lot of scientists disagree with that. I'm uh, sort of in the middle ground, but I'm also an optimist. And I have a lot of hope that uh, humanity can rise to this. Um, but, but the sea ice loss, uh, what is so shocking about it is its far-reaching global climate stability impacts. So the jet stream is now wobbly and it has these deep troughs, whereas before it was very stable. So it can't contain the polar vortex. So that's why Texas, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, froze. The heat dome, we've always had heat domes, but the severity of that uh, is linked to the loss of sea ice. That was one of the most extreme events, climate events we've had in the United States, in the Pacific Northwest. Literally, the tidal pools basically boiled. And they estimate a billion life forms, from urchins to worms to invertebrates, were made into stew. That to me is just, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking that we have allowed ourselves to get to this point when 
you at going back to your first question. When this was first made public was in 19, either 52 or 54, that this was coming. Mm -hmm. And a few scientists followed it. And then more and more and more, at least for 25 years, we have known. The Paris Accord took 21 years. Talk, 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 you know. And so what's complicated in all of this is humans. What's complicated is not stepping up to the common good. It's so interesting because I think one thing I just wanted to touch on is on the one hand, there are these really deep philosophical, spiritual questions that, you know, for myself and my friends, I know we're grappling with, and I would encourage our listeners to keep asking those questions about, you know, what are the bigger picture questions that we're faced with at this time, this pause that COVID has provided for us to reevaluate. And, you know, as you had said, you know, this is sort of like a kindergarten level challenge that could be seen to prepare us for the, you know, bigger university task of truly mitigating climate change and coming back into harmony with ultimately with ourselves, with fellow humans, with their planet, with the animals. At the same time, we have these very practical surface things that we have to deal with. And that's one of the things that I think makes being human both so juicy, challenging, beautiful, poignant, complicated, is that we have to grapple with these deep philosophical questions. And I think it's very healthy and good to do that. And at the same time, operate on this surface level of how do we interact with social media? How are we sharing information? What are the conversations we have? You know, what is the government doing right now? How do we get involved with, you know, civic activity? How do we put more pressure on? Because in many ways, it's, it feels like a both and, that there's both the spiritual side of the challenge, but there's also a very physical, practical surface side to this challenge that needs to be addressed. And one of the things that keeps coming up for me is, it really comes down to corporate greed. So much of the blocking of progress, it would appear from my, you know, my humble position in this, is it, it really has to do with corporate interests. It has to do with money. It has to do with who is holding power. And to just go there, it's you know, patriarchal white supremacy had a real negative sway on our planet and has had held power for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we're in this awakening of all of these interplays of how, who holds the power, how that influences the health and well-being of everybody now around the world. So I find it hopeful, you know, that you have hope as well. And that to know sort of like key things that we need to focus on when it comes to the work that we do and where are we putting our attention? Cause there's so much. So I'm interested to talk more about global choices and how, you know, really focusing on the melting ice that our planet has, why that's so important. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I, I do want to address something that you said, you were talking about the spiritual piece of this and the real practical. They are not mutually exclusive. 
in fact, the spiritual piece can actually be the bedrock for getting the practical done. Because, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily need to be spiritual, but having the right values in place, being able to walk in principles that support life, do not diminish life. We've had an economic system uh, that has been operating as if uh, the environment was subservient to the economy. It's the other way around. The economy is subservient to the environment. So there's a lot of systemic changes that, that need to flip because they're just the one I expressed is like 180 degrees off, uh, if you will, off, off target. So the reason that the Arctic sea ice is so important is because it actually is the global SOS of our time because it affects so much. And as I was saying before, the impacts are so far reaching, and I didn't have a chance to to get deeper into that. But now they know that severe floods and droughts in northern Africa and even beyond are linked to sea ice loss. Um, The ocean currents are now affected by sea ice loss, both because fresh water is coming in, but also because there is a warming of the northern oceans and all those currents are connected. And the Gulf Stream has slowed down and the AMOC has slowed down. So, and even less moisture in the Amazon is linked and fires in California. And again, you know, the, the heat dome. So the effects of this are global uh, and they're measurable, really measurable because the sea ice, we can see from satellite what is actually happening. I've been to the Arctic a few times and you can't imagine how pristine and beautiful it is. And when you think also of its service to the planet, we just can't let this go. We cannot let this go. So what do you do? Well, when we looked at this, because the ice is melting, instead of nations going uh, flat out on mitigation of what was creating the, the melting and knowing that these impacts were potentially catastrophic, instead of that, Many nations and many corporations are, you know, sitting up there like vultures waiting for the ice to melt. And they want deep seabed uh, mining because in the Central Arctic Ocean, there are these nodules that, you know, we've heard about where there are rare earth minerals, oil and gas, a new shipping lane to go across the North Pole, like a Suez Canal, which would save two days, taking an estimated two days, taking goods from China to Eastern Europe, okay? Also, 
there's a potential of nuclear testing. In fact, Russia has already done that. And radioactive waste dumping and seismic testing. So all of that impacts the existing ice that's left. Both ice extent and, I want to explain this uh, simply, ice extent, which is how much area it covers, and uh, its depth are both really important uh, in how that system functions because the older ice is the thicker ice and ice builds on ice. So you don't want to disturb, you know, that older ice. And that is a significant piece of uh, the conversation around, you know, what's happening up there. So in looking in that, we thought, okay, what do we do? Well, obviously there has to be deep emission cuts and, you know, these other things that we just talked about. But at the same time, we have to protect what is there and use this situation as the global SOS that it is and move the ice crisis, what we call the ice crisis, which is polar ice, basically, and glaciers, which is all called the cryosphere. That's the ice on the planet is called the cryosphere, is headed for extinction. And so that is, you know, a global SOS. And as far as the Arctic sea ice goes, that is really, as far as I'm concerned and global choices are concerned, that is the litmus of evidence to which global leaders should be held accountable because we can measure it. So to protect the existing ice, we came up with a moratorium a pause, a 10-year moratorium, just to stop the Wild West, pause the Wild West approach. And this would prohibit uh, oil and gas exploitation, seismic testing, deep sea bed mining, new shipping lanes, um, particularly one across the North Pole, seismic testing, radioactive waste dumping, including low-level radioactive waste dumping. And uh, perhaps most importantly is it would prohibit nuclear weapon testing. So that's the package, and it is proposed for the Central Arctic Ocean. The Central Arctic Ocean is non-jurisdictional. In the law of the sea, in the 1980s, it was listed, um, there were common, what they call global commons were listed. And that belonged, quote, it was the heritage of all mankind. So it was the Antarctic, space, high seas, you know, those were global commons. And they belonged to no one, no specific nation. So the Central Arctic Ocean is one of those, and that's where the majority of the sea ice is uh, and where it is melting. So we're proposing the the moratorium for that area, and it uh, it excludes the 200-mile limits 
that you you know you're aware of the exclusive economic zones that every nation gets they got that under the law of the sea as well and that's where it's basically an extension of national boundaries so they do can do pretty much whatever you know they want oil and gas uh shipping whatever in the law of the sea there is an opportunity for nations to submit extensions for their EEZs. They're called the the economic exclusive zones are called EEZs. And they can uh, submit to a commission on continental shelves at the UN for extension of that. Interestingly enough, because these resources that have never been accessible are going to be accessible as the ice melts, Russia has uh, submitted, they started in 2001, they've submitted for extensions three times. The last one was this last March, and they want 70% of the Central Arctic Ocean. They overlap with the extensions filed by Greenland. And also, I think, a bit of uh, Canada. The United States never ratified the law of the sea, which is very interesting. So we don't actually have the legal authority for an extension of our EEZ, we do follow the law of the sea to the letter, to the letter, but, um, and we have filed for an extension, but, you know, that's, that's pretty much going to be a, a mute point uh, unless Congress ratifies, uh, ratifies that, uh, the treaty. So what we have is that complication And it's a serious one because the reason for filing for that submission is for exploitation. That's the reason. China right now, as we're speaking, has a research ship right now going across the North Pole to do mapping and research on the floor of, you know, to see what's on the floor of the Central Arctic Ocean. And they're also specking out, you know, what a sea route across the North Pole would look like as well. The United States has always held and continues under the Biden administration that the the Arctic region has always been a place of cooperation and peace. And even though Russia says that, they are building up military uh, presence in the Arctic uh, to an extent that is actually pretty alarming. And NATO has obviously raised objections and it doesn't really make much difference. They have a weapon now that they say can they can launch from the Arctic that could wipe out the eastern uh, seaboard of the United States. And yet they say, their foreign minister says, but we also hold that the Arctic region is, should be peaceful and an area of cooperation. They have a $157 million project 
uh, going on for oil and gas um, in their EEZ and on land in the Russian Arctic. Their economy is very dependent on fossil fuels, very dependent. So that's a real that's a real challenge for them. On the other side of that, permafrost, two-thirds of Russia is permafrost, and it's melting. And permafrost melt, there's methane gas that comes out, goes into the atmosphere, there's CO2. They're also finding that it's, uh, when it melts, there's kind of this toxic soup, uh, or heavy stew, if you will, because many of the aerosols that we have put into the air uh, in the past, you know, 70, 80 years, actually, because of prevailing winds, migrate to the north, um, as do nanoplastics, by the way. There's more nanoplastics in the Arctic than any other place in the world because of winds and Currents, So they have a real challenge when it comes to permafrost because they have a lot of development there, but it's a world problem now. This is where nation state boundaries are going to have to become porous because permafrost is not just a Russian problem. That is putting the atmosphere is a global common. That affects all of us. So the methane, the CO2, and these aerosols, and, you know, they're finding bacteria and viruses that, that evolved with dinosaurs. And many, they don't know what they are, you know, are now, because things are melting, um, are, are showing up. So um, permafrost is really the Achilles heel of climate change. And the warming... The loss of the sea ice is exacerbating permafrost melt because the Arctic in total is getting warmer and absorbing more heat because we're losing that albedo effect. So we want to protect the existing ice. This is a leverage point for, because it's so visible, for hopefully moving the ice crisis to the top of the global agenda. We're going to be very much present at COP in Scotland, um, the United Nations Conference on Climate Change, which was canceled in 2020, uh, unfortunately. And that was the five years from the Paris Accord. And in the Paris Accord, there were national determined contributions to emissions reductions. And 2020 was the year to revisit that, to see what nations were meeting uh, their commitments. This is all voluntary, by the way, Uh, their commitments and who wasn't and who needs help and who's ahead, et cetera. That didn't happen. So this next COP is very, very important. And it's going to be a hybrid between, you know, people actually being there in person and virtual because of COVID and because of the Delta uh, variant. 
but it is still going to happen, which I think is a good thing because these negotiations and looking at these NDCs and where where the world is collectively is extremely important because right now the 1.5 is a science-determined um, global temperature rise that we think we could survive. Two is more of a political hmm. target. But we're on, we're on the trajectory for 3.2 to 3.7. Oh, crazy. I, <laughs> it's so crazy because one of the questions were, you know, why did you focus on you know, ISIS and ice melting um, as your main target for, for global choices, listening to you speak and you're such a storyteller. I, it's pretty obvious why. And, you know, when you think about climate change, the ice melting has almost been like the brand image, right? It's like when you think of climate change, you think of polar bears swimming in open water and you see the ice melting. And it's like this, like, I think most people like associate climate change with ice melting yet. It's been so hard. I think to get to action and to understand the urgency in the matter because the ISIS are so far away from us. They're so far removed from our everyday life. So when I wake up here in Massachusetts and I step out and I see trees and greenery, I don't think about ice, right? So like, although I know, and I'm someone who's deeply involved in the climate movement, I still, you know, have to bring myself to think about the ice to even like recognize that it's melting. And so, you know, first when you were, when you were talking, I was like, yes, like, let's do this. Obviously this is so important. And then you went on and you went on and I'm like, oh God, I have no power in this. This is about politics and now Russia's coming in. And so like, you took me on this trans, hang on, you took me on this journey of like, okay, I have no power. And then I remember what you said about like, no, but we are, you know, transforming and transitioning. And this is such a more spiritual thing that we might know. And so not to make it too spiritual or too, uh, you know, I, I do want to keep it concrete for, for listeners to understand what we can do. But like, I think it's important to bring it back to like me as a person. I what do I play on this? this. Yeah. I can answer this. Yes. Thank so, you. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, you do have a lot of power. You, you know, women are rising and there is a reason why that's happening because we've been so out of balance and I could, that's a whole nother conversation, but the fact that women are rising is going to make a measurable difference, you know, and we're natural collaborators, you know, and so, we, you know, part of that is bringing the world out of competition into collaboration. That's part of that transformation. As an individual, you have lots of things that you can do. First off, uh, the National Ice and um, two researchers, uh, Juliana Strova, who's, who's um, a colleague and a friend of mine, and a guy, Knowles, two scientists, determined that one ton of CO2 melts 32 square feet of Arctic ice. So we're Global Choices is um, we've had a couple advertising agencies saying, wow, this is a really great campaign. So they're going to help us put that together. So every individual 
once we raise that awareness in a creative way, you know, I think about it now, like when I drive, you know, and, and I'm going or, or fly. Oh my God. You know, a trip from coast to coast is 1.4 tons of carbon. I just melted 32 square feet of my planet's cooling system. We need funding. We need uh, intelligence. We need, we need um, advertising savvy, branding savvy, you know, all of that um, uh, to put these major campaigns together. But that is one way where you can be very conscious as an individual how you relate to the ice. You know, it's interesting because, you know, as you said, the Antarctic's down there, the Arctic's up there. You don't think about it. But we're actually all ice-dependent species. Mm. That's what's so important to really understand. So the next piece of systemic change and decision-making which we can bring up, uh, and I think women are better at this than men, um, is whole systems thinking. Instead of fragmenting everything. And, and I think the reason that we're better of thinking that way is because we're caretakers we take care of our children. We take care of our families where we think of them in relationship to the community. You know, we, we think that way just naturally. And so, and, and we're natural collaborators. So we have a lot to bring to the table in systemic change. We also, you know, I want to take the narrative back pro-life, you know, I'm pro-life for this planet. Mm. And we let that moniker be taken away and never countered that, which was, as far as I'm concerned, was a major strategic failing on the part of those that, uh, you know, that support um, having control of your own body. Mm. You know, so I want to take that narrative back. And women are the ones to do that. We can do that and not get stuck in the abortion conversation. It's not about that at all. And we can also start using different language. You know, we talk about um, right now we're moving in a world that uses, depletes, diminishes, destroys, degrades. We have to go 180 degrees, it's reclaim, restore, refresh, reuse, recycle, all of that. And, we, and, and only use that kind of language when we're talking about climate change or environment, any of this. So once you get that into your own lexicon, it's amazing how other people go, oh, my gosh, you're right. Why didn't I think of that? You can't expect people to do something about something they know nothing about. You know, and, and women are such good communicators. 
for this kind of expression. Yeah. And something too, that I, that kind of was, you know, an ongoing theme in this conversation that, that we really spoke on in the beginning, which has a lot to do with COVID. And it's funny um, you mentioned that because I remember when COVID first happened, I was like, okay, for months, if not years, I've been asking myself what needs to happen for us to, you know, get to the change. Like, I know that everything needs to change. I know that. But, you know, as soon as I look around myself, I just cannot see that change happening anytime soon. So when COVID happened, I was like, all right, I've been asking for this, you know, you know, get on the ride and see where this takes us. And obviously a virus is a really, you know, it's not lost on me that it's a terrible thing. But like, you know, what you said, it's provided this opportunity to think again and to explore other ways of doing things. And for me, it, it all comes back to stress and and how much we have allowed stress to enter our lives from technology, from, you know, who we should be, how we should behave, what we should be saying and all these things. And like, I think for me, a way to gain power and to regain power uh, over myself, but also over my impact on the world is to just slow down and stress less. Uh, yeah, stress less, because the more we're stressing, and I see this in myself, I was just in New York City and having to like stay in different places. And I was, you know, always just being tumbled around. And it's so hard to make those conscious choices when you are in that position. So the more grounded we can be, and the more we can just allow ourselves to just sit down and let things come to us, um, we will make better choices. And we will have different kinds of conversations. And we will start to see how we can do things differently. And that is a new world emerging. And I think we have to remember that this will come from inside us. You know, it is about, re, well, what would you say in the beginning? It's, a, it's nature awakening to itself. Like we are already part of this. So it's just about remembering and letting those voices come forth and to say, okay, I'm actually happier without all the stuff. I'm actually happier without all the stress. And so maybe that's the new world. And also as we're, you know, stressing less, contributing less to consumerism. We're actually taking power away from the corporations trying to destroy the earth, which I think we also really need to remember. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you are exactly right uh, about what, what you just said, because um, I just had a conversation with a colleague last night who has decided not to go to climate week, not to go. And she's a major mover shaker. Um, and not to go to COP. And, and these are, it's COVID. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, she's, she's saying, I'm so much happier. There's so much less stress. I'm gardening. I'm outside more. I'm walking more. And so many people don't want to go back into the office situation because they've discovered that it doesn't serve them. And, it, and even if you're just self-focused, it doesn't serve the collective either. We're hypermobile, you know, to the point where we're changing life support systems on the planet. We're stressed constantly. We're bombarded with stimulus from absolutely every everything unless you make the conscious decision to turn it off slow down and for me and I know so many people who have gone into nature during COVID just that's where you get grounded 
that is where you get grounded. And you cannot be in grace or in the present moment when you're stressed and running around, you know? And so COVID, I think, it's it's hard when you're right in the middle of history to see it. Hmm. But COVID, is go- I think, is going to show us over time it, ha- it was a nudge for just what you're talking about, for slowing down, for recognizing, you know, what is life? What, ha- what makes me really feel alive? And, and it's not the way we've been living, you know, and even consumer choices. When you were on the run, and I'm guilty of this uh, in, in the past, most of my clothes I bought in airports <laughs> because I had no time to go shopping. And, and I'd walk past the shop and say, oh, my God, I need underwear. <laughs> you know? And and I mean, it, it, it just it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, you know. And so I think that overall COVID was a nudge for this transformation. Um that needs to happen and it is happening and it has its own time. It has its own time. The way to accelerate that is through social media, through, you know, bringing forth these different issues and where your power lies in affecting those issues, just like, the ice. You know, the other thing that's going to come up with the moratorium is the United States going to support this? Will the Arctic Council, which are the the five, well, there's eight Arctic states, uh, but there's five that actually have coastline, you know, will they support a pause? You know, who are the member states who will be real champions? of global commons. Well, we know France will. Uh, and we're talking, to, you know, soon to the French ambassador to the to the UN. I talked to him a couple years ago, and he said, when you're ready, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I'm hopeful. Because people are are waking up. When we talk about Earth systems, you know, they know no boundaries. Like, Um, artificial boundaries that humans have created, just like COVID. There's an interesting study that was completed um, on the continents, and they identified, I think it was 842 or 846, I can't remember, ecozones. And when you overlay nation states to those ecozones, nothing matches. And this is one of our conundrums. Because, which is why indigenous wisdom is so critical, Mm. is one of our conundrums is we did not recognize that our boundaries should be the same as nature's ecosystems. We just chopped, you know, here and there, and it was all political, and it was tribal, and it was whatever it was. But now we're seeing that you know, if you have a river system that goes through three different countries or 10 different states and everybody's making their own decisions, it doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. And that's where whole systems thinking comes in. And I think women, as I said, are better at that because we bear children. And even if we don't, we think of that as a whole system. We are a whole system with that child and we're a whole system with our family. And so we're better able, I think, to articulate that. And I have come to the definite conclusion that that kind of thinking now has to go into our decision-making. So as a powerful person on your own, it's acting locally with a global objective. So it's like you're one ton of carbon. Think about it globally. The global objective is to stop the ice from melting. I can do that. I can melt it or not. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. And I think one of the things I like to come back to um, as a mom is that, you know, for anyone who's listening with a family, that as you participate in these conversations, as you learn, as you grow, as you make these choices, you're modeling those choices for your kids and to include them in this journey because it's so valuable for kids to see us making the choices that are in line with our values, keeping the global perspective in mind as we make those local choices. And I love that idea of women's knowledge being so important and that, you know, for, for any woman who's listening, you know, whoever you are, wherever you are, trans, cis, whoever you are, that you have power and that we need you and that there are more of us who are ready to collaborate with you. And so not to shy away from that power or to, you know, dim it for any reason to step into that and just how powerful that is. And that if you know women in your life who need to be raised up to keep doing that as well, because we are absolutely all in this together. And it's a very exciting time to be alive, to oh, say the least. Yeah. <laughs> It is a very exciting time to be alive. And I, I feel blessed to be here, you know, at this time and be able to step up. Mm -hmm. You know, there are women in other countries <laughs> that can't step up the way we can. And so we have an incredible opportunity to make a measurable difference. And that's, that's the key, a measurable difference. Yeah, so I, I'm very supportive of women and Global Choices has. Uh, we have an intergenerational, international um, ice activist network called the Arctic Angels. And there, we have now 33 Arctic Angels in 25 countries. And they are remarkable young women like yourselves, absolutely remarkable. And they're doing specific things for the environment in their own country um, or for sustainability or for uh, women and girls, but they understand the overlay of the global climate stability uh, to their work. And that's why they've become Arctic Angels, because they understand how important 
this is. And when you think of global climate stability, you have to also think of international stability to minimize conflict over food scarcity, you know, over uh, there's an estimated 680 million coastal residents who will be affected by sea level rise. Now, most people think of the ice melting, which would be the ice sheets, the Greenland sheets, ice sheet and Antarctica is sea level rise. And that's yes, but there's so much more to that, as I've just explained. So they become climate refugees. And that creates so much conflict and so much suffering for so many people. And one estimate I read that indirectly or directly, 2 billion people will be affected by loss of the sea ice and sea level rise. So it is something that, you know, we can have an influence on. Everybody should get involved with whatever's happening locally. You know, you can get involved on Facebook and social media, Instagram. The Arctic Angels have an Instagram handle and we are posting all the time, you know, and not just about the Arctic, but on a variety of of subjects that the angels are engaged in in their own countries as well. And we have an angel in Italy that hopefully, if everything, I don't want to talk too much out of school, but she may be talking to all of the mayors wow. of Italy because the chairman of that group is a friend of mine. So, you know, we're working to to get the angels more visibility at national national levels. And we also have the Arctic advocates. The Arctic advocates are like the troops, you know, and the angels are the leaders uh, at this point. And so anybody can go to our website, uh, www.globalchoices.org and apply to be uh, an angel, an Arctic angel, which is really a lot of fun. And you learn a great deal. We have sessions once a month. We often bring in people like Dr. Sylvia Earle, who is one of the premier women on the planet for ocean conservation. She's the mother of ocean conservation. Uh, We brought in Richard Dunn, who is Prince Charles education director for the Harmony Education Program. So people like that, that we can expose the angels to, and they learn a great deal. Uh, And we have people who are experts in leadership, all kinds of subjects. So it's not just, you know, signing up to be an activist. We're really mentoring these young women. These are the future climate decision makers. They're going to be, you know, world decision makers at some point uh, in the not so distant future. If you're listening and you feel like, okay, after this one conversation, I am ready to get into it. And I really want to start doing whatever I can to help. I obviously recommend checking out globalchoices.org. We will also link that in the show notes. And Sally, I feel like I want to cook dinner for you so we can sit down for hours on end and keep talking because 
my life has shifted tremendously just from this one hour conversation. And I, I, I just, I want to thank you for everything you're doing and have been doing for basically your whole life. Thank you for being so connected with nature. Robin and I are so honored to have you here. And like I said, I wish I could keep you on for more hours, but we have to wrap this up. And it's been pretty obvious throughout this talk that you are an optimist deep inside, but I'd still want to end with this question because I call myself the climate optimist. And so are you a climate optimist? Do you believe in an optimistic future? And if so, why? Uh, I believe in an optimistic future because I ultimately believe in the goodness of humanity. And I, ha you know, I have to say that these pockets of people who are arising now and who are really getting involved and speaking up and speaking out, and there's a readiness now for change because people know it's not working. And now because of COVID, so many people know that they weren't happy in the way life was proceeding prior. And we're very creative. We're co-creative actually with the universe and the universe actually is abundant. It's not as scarce as we have been taught that it is. And, you know, with those concepts as part of my principled center, which I hope I follow all the time. I don't know if I do, but I try to. Um, I think that if we arise and women lead, that we can do this. I really do. You know, but it has to be soon. It has to be soon. You know, we've got about probably 10 years, maybe 15, but I don't even want to go there. We have 10 years where we can make global choices that really make a measurable difference for the future. And I work personally for the future of next generations of all species, not just humanity, all species. We would be in such poverty emotionally and spiritually without all the other species we share this planet with. I can't even imagine. So I work for next generation of all species. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. And I know myself and Anne Therese and our listeners are growing right now. If you, if you were here and could listen, you could hear us grow. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean? Mm -hmm.
to you.